0: Hello and welcome to the next episode of the Shane Walsh Podcast. So today's episode is something, a topic that I've really wanted to cover for a very, very long time, but haven't managed to find an expert in the field that I wanted to, that was giving out evidence-based information that actually was giving proper information to to people with this. So today's amazing interview is with Christian Costas. So Christian is a dietitian and specializing in adult celiac disease. He's worked in acute hospitals with inpatient and outpatient caseloads for over five years now, and has set up a national uh, award-winning celiac-led dietetics-led celiac service in the UK, where he's responsible for explaining the diagnosis, the dietary management of patients, ordering bloods, assessing their bone health, and overseeing their health needs. He's doing an amazing job in kind of raising awareness of of celiac disease through different channels. And he has contributed to creating national disease Uh, CDAC disease resources, guest lectures at universities, and service development as well. And this is a quite complex kind of episode. There's quite a lot to it. So, what we talk about is how to get a diagnosis. What is CDAC disease? What are your options after it? What is gluten? Some of the biggest myths that are out there. Is there a genetic component to it? Can you grow out of it? Are male or female who's more prone to it? Uh, The importance of not self diagnosing. The importance of getting an ongoing follow-up on what you can do, how long does a diagnosis actually take, is there overlap between IBS and celiac disease, the psychological burden, how to manage a busy social life, how to manage travelling. There's loads and loads in this, and it's quite in-depth, so you probably may listen to need to listen to it a couple of times in order to kind of see... And get the information properly. So I really do hope you enjoy the episode with Christian. If you want to work with him and if you want to use the links in the show notes on the questionnaire that we speak about, the app that we speak about and want to work with Christian. Really do hope that you enjoy the episode with Christian. And I really do hope if you click on the resources and the links in the show notes, you will be able to get the information that you're looking for. So hopefully you guys enjoy the episode. Christian, how are we, sir?
1: I'm doing great, thanks. Looking forward to, to the chat with yourself.
0: Thank you so much for coming on. I know we were kind of talking off air and we were kind of both in the agreement that this is kind of one of those under kind of nourished industries and kind of ner- under nourished kind of subject matters. And I think a lot of people can be impacted or think they're impacted, which is what we're going to talk about. So for anyone who isn't aware of what you do on a daily basis, can you kind of talk talk us through a little bit more?
1: Sure. So I'm actually a gastroenterology dietitian, which means a dietitian specializing in digestive diseases. And within these digestive diseases, the area I most work in and specialize in is celiac disease. So essentially, I'll talk a bit about celiac disease through the podcast and define it. But essentially, what I do day to day really is um, I, I work both in the NHS and in private practice. And in the NHS, I run a dietitian led celiac service, which means that I'm the main clinician looking after patients with celiac disease rather than been a doctor, but I work very closely with one of our gastroenterologists too. If there's medical issues, so I support patients from diagnosis to ongoing follow-up within the NHS. We develop our service, support patients in different ways, and then also in private practice, I support patients through City Dieticians, which is a London clinic. Um, and we do we sort of mainly I mainly do online sessions, but essentially support people there with celiac disease and other gluten-related disorders. Which we can I presume there'll be some issues we'll we'll touch on, and then we can clarify what some of these different things are for people who want to know a bit more about but essentially do a bit of that work a bit in in research always trying to contribute to research to improve things too. Uh, do a bit of guest lecturing at university for dietetics courses and really try to raise awareness on social media and many different platforms about celiac disease and other digestive diseases essentially
0: and have you noticed a big kind of uptake or in kind of people looking for kind of diagnosis in the last little while or have you kind of has it been always been kind of quite high or is it kind of spiked up in the last little while?
1: Yeah, really good question. So I think from, from an interest perspective, I would say definitely the interest has picked up a lot in terms of, people being aware of digestive health, um, and trying to optimize digestion through diet, but also about digestive diseases. And it's really good. There's lots of awareness been raised in that, in that way. But I think we're also seeing a rise in, in diagnoses of some of these digestive conditions. So for example, celiac disease, we know that internationally across different countries, the it's, it's on the rise. So, and we know this is within the UK too. Some of it, I think we can attribute to better diagnostic tools and better awareness around, uh, you know, around clinicians being more aware of celiac disease. you know, Previously, for example, if you talked to or asked clinicians about celiac disease about 30, 40 years ago, many wouldn't really know what it is. Yeah. But now we've got much better awareness, better tools, better non-invasive tools to diagnose it, which, which really helps. But I think there's also other components, which is why it's, it's a complex condition that are probably contributing to a raised diagnosis that we can't just explain with better diagnostic tools. And we're seeing this in a similar way in some other digestive conditions.
0: Can you explain exactly what it is? Because I don't think an awful lot of people know what it is. And I know a lot of people can just say, right, I'm celiac. It's like, no, no, there's, you need to actually figure out what the actual definition is first, because it's hard to, hard to diagnose it yourself with something if you haven't got a definition of something.
1: Definitely, and I, I would say it's something that you, it's impossible to diagnose on your own, essentially, because what it is is an autoimmune condition, and and actually it's what we call a multi-system autoimmune condition because it affects different systems in the body. So what happens essentially is that when someone has celiac disease and they eat gluten, then what happens is that that gluten triggers this autoimmune response where the body ends up attacking itself at the height of the. Sm- Small intestine, and it's kind of the proximal part of the small intestine, just after the stomach, which is called the, the duodenum. That's where most of the damage happens. It happens further down too, but that's where we see most of most of the damage really. And what happens is that if we actually if we don't treat this and we don't remove gluten, which we know is the known trigger for this condition, then there's ongoing gut damage that happens, and this can lead to symptoms, ongoing symptoms, and ongoing complications. So for this, because it's a it's kind of a, a complex condition because there's many things that interact there, but actually we knew you've got specific tools to diagnose people and this always has to be done through a through a health professional essentially
0: and like what exactly is gluten because i think people when they think of kind of gluten it's just well i just can't have bread
1: yeah, great. So, and I think the, the key thing here is to, and this is really good to differentiate a bit. So a lot of people associate bread with gluten, but there, it's more complex than that because gluten is just one component in bread, right? And, you know, we, we can talk about some of the other components that might trigger symptoms, and other conditions, but that's why just eating bread and getting symptoms, we can't just say, oh, my, I must have celiac disease because it's gluten, because there's other components that, that could be triggering and it could be like, You've got other medical conditions too, where there's other components from, from wheat that, that are causing or contributing to them. But essentially, gluten is a protein, right? And it's a protein that we find in specific cereals or grains, which are wheat, barley, and rye, right? But what I always tell people is remember, you know, if you touch your eyebrow, remember the acronym BROW, that's barley rye and there's the o for oats and w for wheat so oats are a bit of an exception there because they don't actually contain gluten right but they they tend to be made in facilities or grown in areas where where they can come into close contact with gluten this can be enough to to cause damage to the gut of people with celiac disease and i'll talk about the the amount that that can damage your gut later but essentially what happens with with oats too is that they've got a protein called avenin which is similar to gluten some people can react to gluten-free oats you know some people with celiac disease can react to gluten-free oats so that's why they're a bit of a a one in the middle there but most people with celiac disease can tend to have gluten-free oats and and tolerate them fine
0: and what are those other components that you were talking about there a second ago
1: yeah sure so so this is where when we're talking and i think this is why it's really good to break this down so a lot of people will say i eat bread got symptoms I'm gluten intolerant, right? So, first of all, the first thing I'd say there, gluten intolerance does not exist, right? As a medical condition. What we have to do is we have to investigate further to identify if it's an actual medical cause causing you these symptoms when you're, when you're eating, say, bread. Let's put bread as an example uh, and to identify what component it could be that's triggering the symptoms so what we have then is we, we've got autoimmune conditions that might be causing the problem and then these are where you know we know okay well it's likely gluten that will be triggering these and within these autoimmune conditions we've got celiac disease right where the, the damage is to the gut there's another autoimmune condition called gluten ataxia most people probably won't have heard of this but this is where gluten can damage the brain and then people can have stroke type symptoms too so it's really rare there's only one center in sheffield that diagnoses it in the uk it's quite a rare disease but you know they can diagnose it there um and you know people can get, have as i said stroke type symptoms slurred speech a uh, struggle struggling to point at things in my- Ability, balance issues or headaches migraines brain fog that sort of thing and then some people can have dermatitis or petiformis another autoimmune condition triggered by gluten where people get skin rashes that blister too right and then what can happen is people who see like disease can have dermatitis or petiformis and gluten intaxia too because having one can increase the risk of others uh, but you don't have to have have all of them but then so that's with an autoimmune base right but then we've also got if we say with, with, for example, bread, some people might get symptoms from what we call a wheat allergy, right? But that's only problems with wheat because it's another component there within wheat that people are reacting to. And you wouldn't have to avoid things like barley and, and rye. Most people won't have an al- allergy to wheat. Barley and rye It'll just be to wheat, right? Which is why celiac disease, often people say, oh, you know, it's an allergy. Well, well it isn't, you know, because allergy, you know wheat allergy, celiac disease is an autoimmune condition. And then... This is what, what, where again, it gets a bit more complex. So we're not talking about autoimmune conditions or allergies, then what we've got left there is a response to potentially fructans, which is a carbohydrate in in, in bread, right? And some of these fructans, people will be familiar with the term FOTMAPs probably, which are fermentable yeah. carbohydrates, which can actually, in in people who have irritable bowel syndrome, they can contribute to symptoms. So actually, bread has gluten and fructans. So then when we're eating bread, we can't say, oh, it's the gluten because there's, there's other components there. But we would need to know if that person has IBS, which we can talk about when we talk about diagnostic tools for celiac disease i can talk about some of the differences there but it could be that potentially or it could be something else which we call non-celiac gluten or wheat sensitivity where we know someone doesn't have celiac disease they don't have a wheat allergy and then this is where it's, it's pretty tricky because we don't have actual blood tests or you know, we don't have any sort of test to diagnose it. So it's almost doing like a a blinded placebo controlled trial uh, of a challenge with gluten and there's a sort of protocol for it and all this sort of stuff. But essentially we're trying to find if we, give someone placebo and then give them gluten without them knowing does it actually elicit symptoms and trigger them and then we could potentially say yes it's gluten but we wouldn't be giving this person bread we would be giving them either a capsule or a sachet with gluten specifically right so this is how nuanced it is really to get to this conclusion that someone has non-celiac gluten sensitivity for example we need to rule out other things and and also within wheat there's also other components called amylase trypsin in- inhibitors or wheat germ glutenins too which we know can trigger symptoms. So again, it's not, we can't just blame the gluten here. As you see, there's all these other things that we would need to find out and get tests for before we actually know what it is that's causing the symptoms and if we've got a medical condition too. I hope I'm not confused. people.
0: <laughs> no, because they're, 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 obviously you've mentioned an awful lot of big words that a lot of people yeah. are kind of, kind of wanting to listen back to. And I think it is important <laughs> to understand that like it is quite a, it's a quite complex uh, thing to try and understand. And Definitely. it can be oversimplified by I just I react to bread, uh, yeah. That's sometimes what can happen. Uh, so it is a quite complex thing to try and understand. Uh, and the gut is one of these things that is only newly being researched, and it is one of the most complex things. Like our mood can be impacted by our gut. Loads of different things can be impacted by our gut. So Definitely. it's one of these things. Main drivers. I don't think an awful lot of people can do understand that side of things and there's an amazing book called the gut brain connection which i would highly recommend people to Mm. read it's not too sciencey it's sciencey enough Mm. but it's not overwhelming sciencey if someone's Mm. kind of coming from a uh, kind of non-sciencey or nutritionist or dietitian background with the with celiac disease is there a kind of a, a genetic component to it or is it kind of like it doesn't matter about your kind of genetic makeup
1: yeah, really good question. So, yes, we know there's a strong genetic component, but it's not the only thing driving the thing. So, what happens is that, for example, if you're a first degree relative of someone with celiac disease, you've got a 10% chance of developing celiac disease. So that's definitely raised compared to the general population. So the the rates of diagnosis at the moment are about 1% is is what it's estimated of people diagnosed within the UK. Worldwide, in most countries, this is what we tend to see, something like 1%, potentially 2% around. It's around 1%, right? Uh, Now, we know that people with celiac disease All pretty much 99% have got, um, have got some specific genes associated with celiac disease, right? But we also know that about 30 or 40% of the population have got these but might not have only 1% have celiac disease, right? So the genes don't drive anything. Some people can have the genes, but then it's something environmental that switches them on. And this is when we talk about things like epigenetics to switching some of these genes on. That's why it's so complex. When I was talking about what's increasing the rates really worldwide, well, it's very hard. There's many different environmental factors that, that might be contributing there. But yes, there's, a, there's a, to answer your question, there is a genetic component with celiac disease.
0: But there are other elements of drivers to it as well. Okay.
1: Yeah, great. absolutely, absolutely.
0: Because normally in nutrition, there's always an answer. It depends. So that's generally yeah. the, the the generic answer. People hate it. My clients yeah. despise. Like it depends. Like Shane, just give me the answer. Uh, I wish I could yeah. just give you the answer. Um, yeah, yeah
1: I... But it's all it's all it's all nuanced, isn't
0: it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You have to cover your back somehow. Um, <laughs> in relation to you kind of get a, getting a diagnosis now, because I remember. When I was like early 20s, I was one of these people. I was like, oh, I'm lactose intolerant. I am celiac. I can't have gluten. I can't have cheese. I can't have X, Y, or Z. Mm. But it turned out it wasn't. It was kind of more of a stress, kind of lifestyle issue that was the main driver. So yeah. if you were, if someone came to you right now and said, right, I think I'm celiac, what would be your kind of like chest- checklist of questions to ask? And what kind of tests, if any, would you kind of recommend that person to get?
1: sure sure really good question so i think the the, one of the first things is i would be checking those symptoms so we know that a lot of people can present with these with digestive symptoms like diarrhea abdominal pain bloating some people can present with unintentional weight loss too these are what we call some of the classical symptoms we've also got a lot of like non-classical symptoms which people aren't aware of so some people might present with things like headaches migraines brain fog even mouth ulcers some people can present with too as i mentioned dermatitis herpetiformis where they're getting skin rashes too a lot of people who present with fatigue, maybe joint pain. So I think there's a lot of these symptoms, you know, and even uh, iron deficiency anemia happens about 25% of people with celiac disease, problems with absorption of certain vitamins like B12 and folate too. So, so really, we, we start to understand this as a condition since it affects different so all these different systems. It's quite hard to diagnose because you've got to be on the ball thinking, actually, could this be celiac disease, right? So I think we have to have a bit of a low threshold there for testing. But some of the things, these things that would raise a bit of, uh, of concerns or thinking is that could it celiac disease again we know there's a first degree relative potentially there's other autoimmune conditions maybe like autoimmune thyroid disease type 1 diabetes we know there's an increased association with them and i think you know just as a bit of a tip for for any listeners if you go into celiac uk there's actually a questionnaire is it celiac um is it celiacdisease.org i think it is and then they can complete the questionnaire and themselves and it tell it will tell them that they should be getting tested through a GP so that's quite useful for anyone considering it but essentially if I were to think okay this person you know coming with some they're telling me they've got symptoms when they're let's say bread eating bread they've got these issues we'd say okay well if we wanted to go for testing then I would. the first thing I'd recommend is not to take try to take gluten out of the diet because the the diagnostic tools we have for celiac disease at the moment are trying to test an abnormality something that shouldn't be happening so we remove gluten from the diet these tests are not accurate so it's right? the
0: opposite of the fodmap essentially what, what do you mean so with the fodmap diet they eliminate a food for a certain amount of time and then bring it back in but with the celiac thing that you're sp- speaking about there a second ago is you actually need to keep it in in order to exceed the abnormality or abnormal yeah
1: Definitely. Well, just for the testing process because yeah, because with with the FODMAPS, it's more symptom-based when we know they have IBS too. But but yeah, with with this, absolutely, you want to keep it in, and it's six weeks. That 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 so first of all, the first thing we'd say is for a blood test, right? You need to keep gluten in your diet for six weeks, eating gluten at least daily, right? And then we've got a celiac disease antibody test. And the main one that that most gps will be checking is uh, immunoglobulin a tissue transglutaminase it's a bit of a mouthful but essentially this is a specific celiac disease antibody and and we want to make sure that that person's eating gluten for six weeks, right? So it's a reliable test. And then if that's elevated, then there's a couple of things that can happen, right? So historically, what's happened in adults, so it's a bit different in adults and children, right? But in, in adults, for example, then usually what would happen is they would get maybe referred to gastroenterologist, And then we would try to verify things with an endoscopy, a camera test that goes down the throat into the stomach, into the small intestine, takes some biopsies, some samples and sees if there's physical gut damage right and then we put those two together and say raise celiac antibodies physical gut damage there we know this is celiac disease but for both tests gluten would have to be in the diet right so we can see there's these abnormal responses within the body right so i think those are key things however we've had in 2020 due to pandemic we had some um like some interim guidance from our from the british society of gastroenterology suggesting that actually in adults because we've been doing this in children for a long time if we do two different specific antibodies one's very raised the the tissue transglutaminase and then another one which is an endometrial antibody is positive then those two could be enough to diagnose someone under the age of 55 if we don't have any other alarm symptoms where we think we need to investigate like you know blood in the stools problems swallowing a few of these different things so some people might be able to be diagnosed just on a blood test at the moment in the UK, which makes it easier because they might not need a camera test to get diagnosed. They can get diagnosed a bit quicker too. So there's, there's those two, but I'd, I'd encourage people to speak to a health professional. I've doubt, if They can meet that criteria, that sort of thing. Try to speak to a gastroenterologist or, or your GP so they can refer you in the right direction.
0: What is the, you mentioned a very, very big word and term there a moment ago. What is that in letters that they'd have to look out for on the test when, so that I think it's ICGA or IC- the...
1: Yeah, the immunoglobulin tissue transglutaminase. Yeah. So, so essentially, yeah. and this is where, again, there's there's another useful tip I'll give here. So basically when we're testing that, there's two parts of that, right? So one is the immunoglobulin A and the other one is tissue transglutaminase, right? A TTG in brief, right? So what happens is that since they're both bound together, some people with celiac disease have got a bit of a high chance of having a low immunoglobulin A. So, when we're testing, we would check two blood tests the immunoglobulin, a tissue transglutaminase. We- you would also want to check a total iga to make sure that that iga is not deficient because if it is that test is inaccurate and it it will never raise even if someone has celiac disease so really we want to test those two but again on celiac uk there's more guidance of this if anyone wanted to check on the celiac uk website for a bit more information i know this might sound like like a lot of uh, a lot of stuff we're going into detail with but i think this is useful to know because sometimes it helps to make sure the right tests are done And really what we're looking for is to know if that's abnormal so it could be a lot of the reference ranges might be like zero to five zero to ten zero to 15 so anything that's raised is worth exploring further and okay. then some of them can be extremely raised right so we're looking for something that is raised above the normal
0: okay well what I'll do is I'll put in that link into the show notes so people can actually do that a questionnaire for themselves and I think the next question is going to be really really important which is the importance of not self-diagnosing like there's an awful lot of people right. I can name a handful off the top of my head already that's in a, in my friends' group and relatives and stuff like that that have self-diagnosed themselves. Mm. How, I mean, what was the percentage you mentioned Mentioned that people have celiac disease? It was it
1: 1%? Yeah, so it's 1%, but I'll give you a few other relevant percentages with what you've just said. So the estimates are that in the U- UK, we've got about half a million people undiagnosed and that only 36% are actually diagnosed. So we know that about two thirds remain undiagnosed because these two thirds will likely be a lot of these people that we all know that say, "Hey, I'm gluten intolerant. I ate some bread, I'm not doing well," and that's it, and never get further testing. Or it might also be people who go to the you know GP with some of these um, symptoms outside of the gut, where you know sometimes it's hard for a GP to be aware of all of these different things, you know, and sometimes things don't get f- fully explained or it might be people who don't have severe enough symptoms to think they need to go to a GP. So some people might just present with fatigue and 20% yeah. of people with Celiac disease have no symptoms, right? But they still get the damage in the gut. So really, there's, as you can see, there's a lot of barriers there that will stop people and contribute to that. But again, if people aren't getting the right test, they're never going to get the right diagnosis and know what's causing their issues.
0: It's quite a complex kind of like diagnosis, diagnosis system. Like it's quite... Like it's not an easy diagnosis to get, definitely, and that can
1: bring with it straightforward.
0: That can bring with it like a fear of kind of like, oh, this is going to take ages, so why bother?
1: Yeah, so so I think one of the things is with celiac disease. So the average amount of time to get diagnosed is thirteen years. Okay, so it's a, a pretty long time. Yeah, and this is again because there's many there's many things that go on here. So we know the the other thing too is. Another interesting fact is that up to 25% of people with celiac disease have previously been misdiagnosed with IBS because there's a crossover there of symptoms yeah. right the symptoms can be similar and really what happens is a lot of these people if they don't get the right testing then actually they get told you've got IBS and, and it should always be the right way around that before we tell anyone if they've got IBS with certainty we need to rule out other stuff and celiac disease is one of them that we always need to rule out first for this reason because if not we tell them IBS and it might not be IBS right and IBS we don't have specific tested we have to rule out uh, things to, to get to that conclusion yeah. but I think absolutely you're, you're really spot on there because is we're talking about a diagnosis where we're asking the patient uh, to keep gluten in their diet for six weeks. This is challenging if you're getting symptoms every day with gluten yeah the symptoms can be all over you know different parts of the body too they're not always severe so you might not always think you have to go to the gp too and then you know it might in- it might entail eating gluten once and then again for the endoscopy so what we see is there's a lot of disparity with how, how this happens i think we've got some areas you know some centers where it's very fluent fluid and and basically you get that ttg don't imagine raised send you to gastroenterologists get an endoscopy all sorted within a month quick diagnosis and that's it and and it works really well so for some people it can be really straightforward but then we have some other people where the symptoms aren't clear the blood tests don't always add up we might have to do some of these genetic tests too so it, so it's like in medicine we've never got something that's 100 percent accurate all of the time and sometimes people you know it's not as easy to diagnose them for these reasons but i think a good thing that we can all control is that education of when we go to the gp and saying actually i think you know checking on celiac uk all this sort of stuff checking these symptoms saying actually could it be celiac disease because i think one of the you know i I presume we'll talk about it is that if you don't get diagnosed then again that that can raise more problems because your condition won't be well managed you won't get all the follow-up testing needed and all that sort of stuff which can happen to a lot of people who take gluten out of their diet but don't get fully better because you know maybe they're they've got celiac disease and they're just not well managed and not not never been educated on how they should be following the diet
0: um so say if someone has been recently diagnosed as a celiac Mm -hmm. what is the next step because that doesn't get discussed enough it's kind of like well you're a celiac well it's kind of like do you get given a blue peter badge or do you what what happens
1: yeah and unfortunately you know this is one of the things speaking to patients too many people just get told to google it which really i mean for me that's just so unacceptable as a medical condition is imagine you get diagnosed with diabetes and someone tells you Just Google it, figure out how to to manage it. So, yeah, so so really, I think we will often, a lot of conditions where the only treatments diet or the the mainstay of treatments diet, they'll they'll get downplayed many times. But really what should be happening there is, I think there's two key things, right? One, you should be referred to dietitian 100% because actually someone needs to go through that diet and explain it you know going on google is not good enough it's 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 quite nuanced it's complex it's complicated for a lot of people too and actually we need to follow that patient up to make sure that they're understanding that their symptoms are improving evolving and the same with a doctor right because actually as i mentioned before it can affect the gut and that can affect absorption of certain nutrients it can also affect people's immune system we know people with celiac disease 30% have reduced spleen function so we would re- we would would actually encourage certain vaccinations for some of these patients too and th- there's more follow-up really that we need to make sure some people can have reduced bone mineral density with celiac disease due to problems of dropting calcium, calcium and vitamin d so there's more medical tests there and we and like any medical condition we need to follow that person up and know that things are going in the right direction so i'd say yes definitely starting off with a dietitian doctor and getting some follow-up appointments and then long term people should also get followed up and have annual appointments for the celiac disease where they get annual blood tests too
0: i love that um you mentioned there about kind of like bone health and the question that came into my head straight away was kind of like osteoporosis osteopenia and sarcopenia so is there i don't. i don't want to bring this into bottle of the of the genders but I'll i'll bring it in anyway is there is a more prominent in one gender over the other? I know there are other genders and gender fluids and sexual orientations, so I'm not talking about that. I just want to make sure that this question gets answered. So I apologize if I have left out anyone.
1: Yeah, it, it is essentially. So we see it more prevalent in women. It's almost like a, the ratio is almost like three to one. And we see this with many different autoimmune conditions. And this is a, I think it's a re, it's a fascinating area, too, because it makes you think, you know, are we that different between can we just explain a gender difference for this disparity? you know yeah. and i think there's a lot of other stuff going on there too but but it's a uh, it is yeah like many uh, but this is the fact with many autoimmune conditions we see a higher prevalence in women
0: because i know like because i know with the likes of say pcos or endometriosis mm-hmm. um there is a, a higher prevalence of the likes of ibs in, yeah. in, in people with those kind of um conditions and that can be quite debilitating for that individual. Would there be a higher percentage in that bracket of kind of those endometriosis or PCOS or any other kind of endocrine or hormonal uh, issues with with celiac disease? So are, you, are
1: you asking if, if it could affect? Yeah, them would
0: there be would there be or a, bit, a higher population disease. for those that with, with celiac disease compared to others
1: that that also have endometriosis? You mean? Yeah. Um, so so I think there is do you mean in terms of comparing male and female or men so and women? maybe
0: even someone like not even male male v female but say if so uh, someone who has a menstrual cycle and has a kind of normal functioning menstrual cycle and then versus someone who has endometriosis or, endometriosis or pcos would there be a higher likelihood that you may have um celiac disease
1: yeah, so if you if you have endometriosis, yes, you've got okay. a higher, the, there is a higher, um, it's kind of a lot of these things, it, it's always hard to say you definitely have it or not, but there is yeah, an yeah. association with with celiac disease, yes, yeah, okay. there is. Um, with PCOS, I, I haven't seen it, but a lot of the associations that we see with celiac disease are a bit more down the autoimmune link, right? So it's a bit more with autoimmune thyroid disease, type 1 diabetes, autoimmune hepatitis too we see it with lupus too so so those are some of the the main conditions where you see uh, the associations a bit higher
0: and what about kind of those kind of going through say perimenopause which is kind of get ramped up there if you have like two kind of symptoms get may they get a little bit more heightened because obviously When kind of like the mood and kind of like the diet may vary and you're kind of looking for those quicker fixes of kind of like carbohydrates or quick fixes of sugar and all that Mm -hmm. kind of stuff when you're not sleeping or you're getting night sweats. Um, That's important to talk to the doctor if that's if you're going through that. But do you see it heightened in patients with kind of going through perimenopause?
1: I think the the whole thing here with celiac disease is that, as I mentioned, we've got thirteen years it takes to get diagnosed, and most Madness. people get diagnosed between the age of forty and sixty. So what we do see is people saying, you know, and this might be people who are not getting tested saying, "Oh, I'm I'm at that age." You know, I'm getting some symptoms, it's just probably that, it's the perimenopause. I'm getting that age. And actually, that's why it's always get good to get tested, right? Because what might be happening is that you've got undiagnosed celiac disease. You know, I I've seen we've we've had people diagnosed at the age of 80, 88, you know, 90. I've seen it too, really. But a lot of these people have been living with celiac disease for for quite a while because it can happen, as we mentioned, there's there's the genes you can have, and then the trigger can happen at any point in the lifespan to trigger your celiac disease disease, right? So we see people diagnosed really early age as soon as they're weaned potentially to people much later on in life.
0: Oh, brilliant. Okay. There's another like, like there it, there is a massive, massive kind of element of when there's anything gut related, it can have a massive impact on our mental health. And I think mm. if anyone has ever had kind of like I like IBS or they've had a lax effect from a certain food or you don't feel too well after, or you get kind of like when you're away on holidays over in Thailand or something, you get normally get the yeah. the, the the issues with the stomach that every single person gets. And it's not fun. It, it messes your head a little bit. The, the, the psychological t- burden of it, of celiac disease, isn't spoken about enough. So what can we do to support someone with this? And what can someone do to support themselves?
1: Yeah, I think, I think it's great you asked that question. I think it's really important to point to speak about. So I'll, to put into context, you imagine get a slice of bread, right? Normal slice of bread containing gluten, chop that into 100 slices. So one of those smaller 100 pieces is enough to trigger damage in a day to someone with celiac disease. So really, we're asking people with celiac disease to avoid less than a crumb of gluten for life right? So this is diet we don't want to break because it keeps the gut healthy. So you imagine the consequences of doing that, because it's not just saying, you know, when we say wheat bar. Early right people think oh you know it's just the ingredients just you know look at in the package and that stuff but this involves what we call cross contact too where say imagine you know you get your gluten-free bread but if you put it in the same toaster as the rest of the people in the house then that's what we call cross contact because it comes into contact with some of the crumbs in the toaster gluten you can't use the same oil that's been used like in co- shared fryers so if you go out and just order chips for example you think yeah. okay potatoes that's it but if someone's used that oil to cook something with gluten like fish and chips for example or other stuff then that's not going to be suitable heat doesn't kill the gluten so really this has a huge impact because then for life you've got to avoid be checking all your labels looking at different things on the package with your labels then you've also got to at home make sure everyone's aware at home of stuff making sure that you do your food separately you can use the same pots and pans they just need to be clean right but it's an extra layer with everything and then also you know imagine eating out whenever you go to a restaurant you can't just go to any restaurant because you know if you go rock up to this restaurant and ask about gluten-free options and you know they've got nothing in place to avoid cross contact in the kitchen then it's going to be an unsafe option for you and you can be really unwell for the next few days so it's it's very debilitating so there's the whole trying to avoid symptoms trying to avoid gluten and this you know this is what i say to to patients a lot of the time yes the benefits of this is that it's a dietary treatment and you won't so there's no medication so there's no side effects from the medication but this there are side effects which are psychological and and this is the whole thing and that's why really i always advise people to you know accept that and i would i think that part of when you were asking me before about what happens when you get diagnosed at the moment you should get referred to dietitian, gastroenterologist but I think a psychologist would be key there and we know this more and more in digestive diseases the role of psychologists is there's just no funding for it unfortunately but they should be there there's research you know it's very clear psychologists should be there um, and and that's from a patient perspective I think it's understanding that getting the right follow-up from dietitian, if you can psychologist being open about it joining Celiac UK there's loads of information on Celiac UK they've actually got an app to where you can scan barcodes which is fantastic the celiac uk app scan barcodes and it tells you if they're suitable for you celiac uk get more information from manufacturers they've also got a list of accredited restaurants which are accredited by celiac uk so you know that these have got specific training to cater for you and a lot of these you know even stuff like you've got domino's pizza hut pizza express you know quite a lot of the common chains that we know will engage with that so so there's no we have to be very different, right? Which is a good thing, so, so people can interact. But I think that's for the individual and then for people supporting people with celiac disease. I think the education there is key understanding that this person isn't trying to, you know, when they're saying, oh, I can't either, or asking a server about options or, you know, asking, they're not trying to be funny or fussy. This person is trying to follow the only treatment that they have for their condition. So I think once you understand that, you can empathize more and not say, oh, this person's just trying to call attention. No, they're not. There's going to be some people that do that, you know, when they don't need to follow a gluten-free diet, but people with celiac disease won't because if they had the choice, none of them would choose to follow such a restrictive diet. So I think really it's about understanding that and then, you know, saying, you know, as friends, family, we can say, okay, well, you know, what's better for you? If you come over to mine, are you happy to bring your own stuff if you feel more safe like that? Or would you like me to prepare things in a separate way? You know, what do you want me to get? You know, so it's a bit of like that communication, I think is key and understanding that if you're going to eat out with someone with celiac disease, maybe give them preference to say actually where do you want it because they're going to be a bit more relaxed and you know and going to be able to enjoy it with you and actually you can help them find different places with all these apps there's another app called them um, find me gluten-free which has got you know places that are rated around the whole world to you know so this can help with things like traveling but i think that's all that communication and understanding are completely key there
0: Is there any one cuisine that would be better for someone with celiac disease? Because as you mentioned there the word like pizza and stuff, they are foods that people with, with kind of who are celiac, they kind of fear, they fear like going to like Italy and stuff like that. They're like, this is going to kill me. So it's kind of like, are there any cuisines that you would kind of say would be more friendly?
1: That's really interesting you say that because actually Italy is probably one of the best places you can go if you have celiac disease, because it's so prevalent that they've actually adapted to it, right? So so I think that's why this is a good thing. A lot of people with celiac disease will say, oh, I can't do this. I can't do that. And, And what I say to everybody is we want to make sure that you're avoiding gluten to the right level. Because if you don't, most people, what most people are doing because they don't have all the right education understanding is they're following a more restrictive diet than they need to right but now mo- nowadays actually for most cuisines we have got gluten-free options which is really good so if you check on the a lot of these restaurants you will find loads of places do gluten-free pizza as i mentioned you know you've got pizza Hut, pizza express Domino's, all of these do do gluten-free which is really good and um, but you've got all different types of cuisines so i wouldn't say specifically there's some that if you're looking for naturally gluten-free ingredients then then you know place which does vietnamese food which is which is really good you know they're credited also but yeah you you've got all the different options i would say which is why i encourage everybody to explore and not think this country this food that's it and that's why celiac uk have also got like some travel cards which tells you what to expect in each country tells you a bit of is the provision quite good are they where, what's labeling like all this sort of stuff so it really helps people uh you know make these decisions and not restrict more than they need to
0: I love that. Uh, I think that. I think that website definitely needs to be checked out, and that the the app that you mentioned a, a little while ago. What about kind of like the likes of alcohol, because alcohol is definitely like it, it, it's it's people, something that's people like to have to kind of relax or be socially accepted, all that kind of stuff, uh, and have the crack. But what about alcohol and kind of someone who who's who has Celiac disease? What can they do? Are there anything to kind of watch out for? Cause I know there are, there are alternatives. There are, there are gluten free beers from what I recall.
1: Yeah, definitely. So we've we've got more and more, and it's interesting. Like some countries have got a very different provision. I'm I myself from from Spain, and pretty much every brand of beer has got their own gluten free beer in in Spain, and they taste very similar. Whereas over here in the UK, it's might maybe not as common to see, but there's more and more. And the, you, if you go to any supermarket, you'll find gluten free beer yeah. for sure. But yeah, I think that's one of them. Well, a lot of people drink beer. Then the, there's some, and this is why I think it's so important to get referred to a dietitian, right? Because there's not all, as I was saying you know with oats there's a a few exceptions right depending on the person too but there's also some exceptions to the gluten-free diet so for example you know the the gluten-free beer a lot of it has got barley in it right but it's tested to have no more than 20 parts per million and this in the labeling in different countries is different okay but in the uk this would be acceptable as long as if that product has barley but it's tested to have no more than 20 parts per million that's what's suitable for people with celiac disease then that can be safe to consume okay for most people so there's there's these beers that people can have but then cider can be a really good option when eating out and and the all the other options you know all your spirits will be will be fine to have too and actually there's things like whiskey like malt whiskey right which comes from barley right but what happens there is through the distillation process then the gluten there is minimal and safe for people to have right so there's all these exceptions sometimes we get people saying "Oh, i can't have whiskey and stuff but through the distillation process that is safe to consume too so it's not something that so it might sound like i'm encouraging people to go on the booth but but yeah essentially this is why it's, it's another example really you know where actually it's good to understand you know and you use the app you can scan it with some of the alcohol too and check and say okay is this suitable or not because it's quite overwhelming when you start to understand all of these different different intricacies exceptions all this sort of thing
0: too i think that's really useful information because i think that they're, they're two of the kind of like the bigger drinks that people would have to kind of like maybe go to the pub with their mates or sip at home or have as an eye cap they're kind of some of the yeah, bigger even things. even
1: wine wine is fine too
0: yeah i think a lot of um, people will be like tick tick tick
1: <laughs> yeah
0: i'm going up to get faux as well so they'll be happy out. um <laughs> what was the name of that app again that you mentioned
1: so it, they've recently changed it they used to have two apps one for scanning barcodes another eating out but now it's just the celiac uk um i think celiac uk gluten-free and then it, it'll it appears the the icon's orange right really but it's celiac spelled c-o-e-l-i-a-c right okay
0: okay so what i'll do is i'll put the show notes in, i'll put that into the show notes as well if you look at the site i think it's probably there anyway um yeah yeah so definitely. I think- and I and I know there's an awful lot of technical um information that we put at the beginning of the episode. So I would look back and kind of maybe listen to it again. And if you're someone who's in the position to kind of the 13 years thing is it's it's quite a long process, but I don't want people to be put off by that because I think if you've got 13 years, 13 years out of an 88 year life isn't a huge amount of time. That's probably Definitely. what I would the way I would kind of reframe it in your head and it like gut health issues are a pain in general yeah pardon the pun that they are a pain so it, it there, there is things you can do there's things to watch out for and the, I think the last question I'm going to ask you is what are some of the biggest myths that you would recommend someone to watch out for with kind of mm-hmm. celiac disease
1: good so really and linked to what you've just said a, a really big myth there is uh, you know and I think with all of this it's really important to understand that Quick solutions a lot of times can be what you what you don't want long term, right, for this reason. And then one of the things that we see is that people have these symptoms with bread or, you know, or, or gluten and say, actually, I'm just going to go and buy uh, an online tolerance test that's going to tell me what foods I should eat, which I shouldn't, which don't agree with me. And they just go off and buy it. So sorry for anyone who spent money or wanted to spend money. This is the biggest waste of money. And this is why this is a huge myth. Because actually what happens is these tolerance tests are not accurate. So these that you buy online, what they, they're, they're IgG tolerance tests and they my, the more They're more likely to tell you what you've eaten recently what you can, what you're reacting to. So absolute waste of time. And this is the problem is that you might do one of these and it tells you don't eat wheat. Well, guess what? If you've got celiac disease, that's exactly what you shouldn't be doing. You should be keep, keeping wheat in your diet to get diagnosed. So they don't tell you if you need further testing, they just tell you to exclude random foods. So I think that's the first one. I'd, I'd really encourage people to not do that. Speak to a health professional before removing foods from your diet and try to get to the root cause of your issue. Because even if it takes you 13 years, as he said, you've still got years ahead of you. So the sooner you get to the right diagnosis, the sooner you get to the right treatment, and the sooner you're symptom-free and your gut's healthy too. So I'd say that's that's the first one. Then the other one I'd say is, which is a huge one, people say a lot of this, um, you know, oh, my cousin grew out of celiac disease. I sure, I'm sure you can too. So celiac disease, unfortunately, is a lifelong autoimmune condition. So it doesn't just go away and this is why it's challenging because we're asking people to avoid gluten for life this is why we need follow-up testing too so it doesn't just go away um and i'd say another one too is like you know and this is where there's sometimes people with celiac disease can get a bit of peer pressure to say oh you know we're just having a few drinks just have a bit of pizza you know it's fine just eat a bit and and really what people don't realize is that what you're asking this person to do is to damage their gut deliberately and and probably suffer the consequences most people will get symptoms after it too so i think it's understanding that and and that a lot of people actually think that some people see celiac disease say oh i eat a bit because i don't get symptoms but the key thing with celiac disease we're trying to keep that gut healthy so some people might not get symptoms but they'll still get the damage so that's why it's really important that we're avoiding gluten completely regardless of those symptoms even if you can get away some people can get away with having like a slice of bread every few days and not have symptoms but it doesn't mean your gut is fine so i think i think those three are the key ones um, and then you've got a lot of other ones around people you know saying what the diet is isn't over restricting i see people doing a lot of things like going online and reading that there's this there's similar structural components with things like corn buckwheat other gluten-free grains and then saying cut all grains you know and that's what you need to do and that's where i would say that's why follow-up testing so important right because what we know is that for most people that come back with symptoms it's because they're eating gluten without knowing it so most people would say go online and say okay I just need I've got symptoms still I'm doing a gluten-free diet I need to cut out more foods in my diet cut out dairy cut out everything and then when I see a lot of these people in clinics like because they've never been educated on how to follow the diet so they're still eating gluten without knowing it they might be you know doing stuff like put it sharing the same toaster they might be con- cross-contaminating some of their foods without knowing it when actually it's a much more simple solution we can give them to improve their symptoms right and then they don't have to cut out all of these foods so that's why that that follow-up's key and also you know one of the other things with follow-up is that some people can also have other conditions they might have celiac disease and ibs where we can we can say okay well then we need to manage the celiac disease and also look at managing the ibs so the other conditions can coexist and they might have other medical conditions running with that and that's why the further testing is really important to test and see we need to diagnose something else and treat in in a bit of a different way
0: there's there's a there's some amount of information in that episode <laughs> because even then I've literally written like notes and notes and notes so I like I can only imagine if someone is who is potentially thinking they're kind of potentially need to go to the doctor and kind of have a proper chat I can only imagine with the amount of overwhelming information that's being put out there and kind of like Doctor Google generally isn't the answer to anything really. Yeah. And anything quick fix generally makes the process longer, and anything extreme is normally somewhere in the middle. So yeah, I agree. it's yeah, so it's kind of like be careful where you're taking the information from. I think a lot of people are, when you're when you're at, I know from having been ill at, with other things, you're so just want to get better that Definitely. it's like you look for any answer to kind of almost get you out of that little hole that you're potentially in. So it, it's important to go to, and if you're not happy with your potential GP's answer, you can always go to another one or you can get a second mm-hmm. opinion. I think that's also an important thing because Definitely. not everyone's gonna be up to scratch with, mm-hmm. or up to date with the research or have that this as a specialist area in their expertise. It's important that mm-hmm. if you're not happy, potentially ask for a referral on to someone else further on down the line that could help you uh but christian thank you so much for for, for coming on and and for giving an amazing message and I, and I and i really do appreciate it i know it's friday evening friday afternoon as well so i know you'll probably want okay. to uh go out and kind of enjoy your weekend but where can people find out about you on social media and where can people work with yourself
1: sure so first of all thanks thanks for having me really really enjoyed that and i'm glad we've we've been able to get those messages out which i think are, are completely key any day of the week <laughs> so uh yeah in terms of social media the i my the main page where i share most stuff is on instagram so it's celiac c-o-e-l-i-a-c underscore dietitian that's on instagram on twitter i use the handle christian without an h costas b c-o-s-t-a-s-b um, and those are probably the main two places then in terms of private practice our the website's up and running with city dietitians and this is one of the things i think can help sometimes if as you mentioned if you're going to gp struggling there sometimes speaking to dietitian can help because as dietitians we can identify some things and if further testing is needed potentially communicate to the gp that sort of thing so sometimes it can be a bit of like getting an ally there and that can help to kind of fight your corner and all that sort of stuff right so i think sometimes it's good to to be able to communicate with different health professionals but yeah i think those those three are the main places where where people can find me
0: awesome well, I'll put all those links in the show notes I'll put in the, the, the recommendation with the website where people kind of ask those uh, that criteria of questions so I think that's where I would probably start and if you find that you're yeah. taking yourself an awful lot of those well then you know that you probably need to go and uh, get the next step which is probably talking to a doctor or a dietitian. so thank you so much for coming on Christian
1: okay thanks for having me I really enjoyed it cheers
0: what a brilliant episode that was with Christian and there's so much in there and it's quite technical I'm fully aware of that and if you are someone who thinks that they may be a celiac, please do click on to the resource that Christian has spoken about. And it is really important that you do. And I know it's going to be a feel like it's a long process, but there are resources there available for you. So please do, do use them. So I really do hope you've enjoyed the episode with Christian. If you want to give it a review, share it with your friends, please do. Because the more reviews on iTunes and up on Spotify and whatever... The the more people I get to see, the more people that listen to the podcast, the better the guests and the bigger the guests that I can get on. To say that I'm excited, the, the podcast is fully booked up until March now, which is really, really cool. And I'm really, really excited to announce some of the guests that are coming on in 2023. So if you guys continue to give it the love that it wants and it deserves the podcast, well, then I will continue doing it. And uh, so I hope you've enjoyed the episode. If you want to work with Christian, click on the links below and if you want to work with me on a one-to-one capacity click on the link in the show notes www.sharenwalserfitness.com or you can simply pop me a dm